For some people, the sexual revolution is a bit of an abstract topic that can be bandied about in parlors and after church, and it doesn't really impact their day-to-day -day life, or so they believe. But for pro-life activists, we see the aftermath, we see the collateral damage, we see the wounds and pain and death of the sexual revolution day after day after day. And today I'm joined by a friend and colleague, Jonathan Van Maren of The Van Maren Show, to talk a little bit about some of the theory and practices from the sexual revolution from 50 years ago, 60 years ago, that are influencing some of the worldviews that we see on the street corners and on doorsteps, and a little bit of how we unpack them as pro-life activists. Hi folks, my name is Cam Cote. I'm the host of the Pro-Life Guys podcast and I wanted to say a big thank you off the top for all of you for tuning into the show. Um, I'm thrilled to have you along and to be a part of this. We are at the show, I, I say we, but right now it's just myself. We we said farewell, unfortunately, to my my longtime friend and co-host. Um, you're still my friend, even though he's no longer my co-host, Peter Boss, um, who's off into the next chapter and adventure of his life. Um, but we're a show dedicated to equipping you with the tools that you need to have compassionate and compelling conversations about abortion so that you can change minds, save lives, and transform culture. And we do that by giving you tools um, day after day, after week after week, um, through this podcast, through the other um, outreach that we're doing. You can check on our website, ProLifeGuys.com. You can check on our parent organization, um, the Canadian Centre for Bioethical Reform at EndTheKilling.ca. And so much of what we do is trying to empower you, our audience, to have conversations, whether they're with your friends and family members or whether they're on street corners or on doorsteps, with people in your spheres of influence about this vital issue. We all know that in Canada, abortion is happening around 300 times every day. We know that um, worldwide, we're looking at tens of millions of abortions being performed worldwide every year. And so regardless of where you live, um, Tragically, there are probably abortions happening on your shores. And so these tools are there to help you change minds of people who may not even become um, pregnant. They, they might not be pregnant at that time. They may never become pregnant, but they may influence the people around them to have abortions. They might influence, um, they, they might have abortions themselves. This is all geared towards helping you have what for many people can be really awkward and uncomfortable conversations. We want to make those conversations much more manageable and much more able to go forward with. And so I'm glad that you're tuning in. I want to give a quick shout out to a few folks um, that I have been encouraged by their support of the show through Patreon. I want to give a shout out to, um, they signed their name E, and so a big shout out to E, Daniel, Dennis, and Jewel, who have all signed up as Patreon supporters to help us um, continue to grow the show, reach more and more folks with the these these conversation tools, but also help us reach people on street corners and on doorsteps. And so big shout out to them and everyone else who is a part of our financial support team to help us with this important cultural um, issue, profound message of the pro-life worldview going out towards the world. So big shout out to everyone who's a part of our Patreon team. If you want to sign up for our Patreon, um, I would love that. You can head over to patreon.com slash pro-life guys. We just started a new series for Patreon exclusive content. It's called um, The Inside Scoop, uh, where I either talk a little bit about the stuff that I'm working on behind the scenes that you might not see on a day-to-day -day basis, talk with some of the other folks behind the scenes 
at CCBR within the pro-life movement. What's going on? What is um, building up towards later releases and, and campaigns and initiatives that are on the go that you might not be familiar with? And so you sign up as a Patreon, not only are you helping us grow and reach even more people with these important conversational tools, but you also get a, a little bit of cool content as well. And for all of those who are already part of our Patreon team, um, I am finally starting to catch up. If if you have merchandise coming to you, if you have t-shirts, water bottles, whatever coming to you, I will do my best to get those in the mail as quickly as humanly possible. Um, but there's an awful lot on the go, as those of you on Patreon may have seen from the recent Inside Scoop episodes. I digress, though. This is a really exciting episode that I am really looking forward to getting into with my friend and colleague, Jonathan Van Maren, one of my great friends in the pro-life movement. Um, we have um, shared lots of real cool experiences, as we're going to get into a little bit um, in today's episode, but largely what I'm inviting Jonathan on because he is not only a great apologist, he is a great strategist in understanding the different forces that have pushed our world in the direction that it is. That there's so many different forces at play, there's so many different people at play, and I am genuinely interested in his take on a particular interaction that I had a couple of weeks ago. It, it's played out time and again because I spoke with many people in this situation. An older woman, um, roughly my grandparents' age, maybe a little bit younger than my grandparents, um, older woman, radically supportive of abortion. In many ways, I'm sure that many of you listeners can at least appreciate why young people, people who are actively becoming pregnant, um, potentially in bad situations, might seek out and might have a vested interest in maintaining abortion access. That's our mission to go out and, and help them understand that we want better solutions for mothers in bad situations. And yet, at on, on a practical level, we can appreciate why somebody who might themselves become pregnant might at least um, in principle, want access to abortion. It, it might be a lot more difficult, however, for people to understand, for, for you, our audience, to understand um, why somebody who will never have an abortion again, because they're, they're very well aged out of that stage of life, might be so passionate about abortion. Jonathan's going to unpack this a little bit. I'll share a little bit about how, practically speaking, I apply some of our apologetics to unpacking conversations with people who radically support abortion, in spite of the fact that they're, they're our grandparents' generation, or my grandparents' generation, at, at the very least. Um, for some of you, you're probably your, your great-grandparents' generation, but um, I digress as well. So, Take a listen to my conversation with Jonathan Van Maren, um, host of The Van Maren Show. Mr. Jonathan Van Maren, thank you very much for joining the Pro-Life Guys podcast yet again. How are you doing today? Yeah, not too bad. How are things going out in Calgary? Good. Working on getting a new hire, working on out here. Hopefully, we'll have an episode mm. about community outreach and what that looks like as I'm working on hiring a new community outreach coordinator for Western Canada. Um but that is a different episode. Jonathan, you're, you're the man when it comes to the culture war. And I thought that we would launch into whether this is a single episode. I would love to do a couple episodes on this, depending on your availability. Uh, talk about some of the cultural factors that have built in towards the worldviews that the people that we interact with on a day-to-day -day basis, why do they hold? these worldviews? What are the factors contributing towards these worldviews? And I want to start by painting a bit of a picture in your mind and then getting your take on breaking down what has contributed towards this worldview. And this happened to me 
last week. I was doing Choice Chain in, in Calgary. For those of you that are unfamiliar, this is a project that we do on street corners, showing the reality of what abortion does to, uh, to preborn children and inviting people into conversations about the pro-life worldview and where they're at on the issue of abortion. And this woman approached me wearing like a pastel colored blouse. She was probably in her... I don't know, mid-70s, maybe early 80s. An older woman, but still fairly active, wearing this colorful blouse, this floral pattern, little um, jumpsuit sort of thing. The kind of woman that you look at and you just assume that she knows how to make apple cobbler. You just know that she knows exactly what she's doing. She has this grandmotherly kind of demeanor to her. And in my mind at times, I expected these lovely old ladies are going to be the ones that, that pat me on the arm and say, thank you, young man, for the, the service that you're doing. And yet when, when I asked this woman, what do you think about abortion, ma'am? She responded with a 10-minute tirade as to why abortion is absolutely necessary and there is no way that women are getting rammed back into the dark ages. And as this conversation unfolds, and, and at the end of this episode, I'm going to walk through what I tried to accomplish in conversation and how this conversation unfolded. But I'm curious, Jonathan, when you hear that, first of all, does it surprise you that there are some elderly folks in our communities that are radically supportive of abortion? And maybe if that doesn't surprise you, what are some of the factors that contribute towards people in that generation being as adamantly supportive of abortion as they are? Well, the thing is that old people aren't quite what they used to be. Um, old people used to be the greatest generation, and now largely they're the boomers. And I think this is sort of important to recognize because it's it is the source of, of your shock when you meet somebody in their seventies. I think for a lot of us, history stopped around two thousand, and so if you hear you know thirty years ago, you're still thinking nineteen seventy, not you know yeah. nineteen ninety. And so that is definitely a part of it. I've had scenarios too where like the sweetest old ladies will suddenly erupt into a tirade of really creative profanity that was definitely invented well after they were young. But I'll give you an example. Like when I was, uh, when I was in the U S for, I went for the Trump inauguration and then I went to the women's March, um, just like so out of curiosity so I could write about it afterwards. And Gloria Steinem was on the stage right in front of us. And I realized Gloria Steinem's in her early eighties. Uh, you know, in, in your mind, she's this, you know, a, you know, a younger abortion activist and you, you know, that she's probably middle-aged now, but the fact that she's in her eighties was, you know, kind of pretty shocking. She was one of the primary second wave feminists who really brought abortion into the feminist agenda. But yeah, that was all the way back in the late sixties. And so you also have a lot of women now who fought for decades to get abortion on demand, especially specifically here in Canada. Where's the book? It's right behind me, actually. There's a new book that came out last year called The Abortion Caravan, which gave all the details uh, from the personal perspective of all of the women who went across Canada from the Vancouver Art Gallery all the way uh, to the House of Commons and to the Prime Minister's front lawn protesting Canada's restrictions on abortion and demanding that abortion uh, be completely unfettered across the country, which, of course, they eventually got in 1988. But all of those women are very elderly now as well. And I remember this one really interesting moment in Toronto when we were on the new abortion caravan in 2012, which is now 10 years ago this year. We were, we were 10 years ago, Cam, uh, today we were, on, we were on the new abortion caravan heading across the country. And... <laughs> While we were on that tour, there was this older lady who came up to us uh, while while we were doing Choistion in Toronto, and she just was kind of shaking her head, looking interested, not actually angry, not kind of furious like some of these scary old ladies do, 
And she said, it's so interesting. I was on the original abortion caravan and now I'm seeing all of these young women who were on this new abortion caravan protesting all of the rights that we sought to establish in Canada. So the the angry people the who you know you expect to know how to make apple cobbler are 20 years younger than your grandparents probably and for the most part were part of the boomer generation that brought us a lot of the things that CCBR and other social conservative groups are dedicated to fighting. Gotcha. That that makes a ton of sense. And and I, I certainly can think of other experiences with people in that same kind of age range of, of thinking that that these people fought in first world or not the first world war, the second world war, um, when when really they, they were born after they're exactly that demographic that you're talking about. Um, quick aside, I hope that the the emergence and, and writing and publishing of that book, The Abortion Caravan, might suggest that there might be a publishing of the book, The New Abortion Caravan, at some point. But we'll leave that discussion for another day, potentially. So maybe let's talk about the new abortion care. Uh, sorry, the, the original abortion caravan um, back in 1970s. Um, and why were these people, why were these women primarily willing to uproot whatever they had going on over, over that summer and travel across the country and demand abortion access? Why and how did abortion become the sacred cow of the sexual revolution and new age feminism as where I'm sure, I mean, you've written an entire book on this, but, but help the audience understand why there was such a passionate drive for abortion access and why there's these women now that we're still interacting with on the street that still think of abortion very frequently and very adamantly in their minds. Why is this something that is so close to the heart of so many people? Well, so I'll give you a bit of a Canadian context, especially for all the listeners who probably aren't familiar with the generic outline of the history of abortion in Canada. So abortion was was illegal in Canada until the 1969 omnibus bill, which decriminalized abortion. But in order to get an abortion, you still had to have that abortion approved by a panel of three doctors. If your doctors were largely pro-life, very few abortions got rubber stamped. If your doctors were pro-choice, basically all abortions got rubber stamped. And so, of course, this was a very unsatisfactory city of affairs for uh, young abortion activists and young feminists who believed that abortion was fundamentally a human right that should be available to anybody without any stigma and that furthermore the government should actually pay for it. And so a group of, of very revolutionary feminists and activists got together at Simon Fraser University, which is where I graduated from in, in 2010. Uh, it's sort of, for those of you who aren't familiar with it, it was considered the, one of the most radical campuses in Canada back in the early 60s. Some of the professors I had would, would reminisce fondly on, you know, walking around the fields and chewing peyote. And this whole thing, it's, it's this massive, you know, gray concrete structure on the top of Burnaby Mountain stuffed into the clouds with the highest suicide rate in the country and uh, designed by Arthur Erickson, who said concrete was the new marble and unfortunately was wrong. And SFU at this point was a hub of revolutionary activity. And one of the illegal abortion networks actually ran out of Simon Fraser University. Women who were seeking abortions illegally would tap into networks at SFU. And so it made sense that there was going to be a, uh, an abortion movement launched off of that campus just because that's where the revolutionary activity was taking place. And so a bunch of women got together and decided they needed to protest uh, the fact that abortion was not freely available on demand. They left from SFU. They had a rally in front of the Vancouver Art Gallery. They had a whole bunch of vans and they basically went across the country and at each, place, at each place where they stopped, they would try to hold a presentation. They would hold what was known as guerrilla theater, where they would act out uh, these um, 
various illegal abortion. Uh, uh, they did it a couple of different ways because obviously some of the illegal abortion uh, methods are pretty hard to do, but they did their very best. And, and the whole point was that everything was uh, gruesome and bloody and they were attempting to shock people into saying, you know, we need abortion on demand because if not, women are going to do this. And they got put up by the United Church across Canada and church basements. So a lot of the mainline Protestant denominations collapsed so long ago that they were actually part of a movement to facilitate legal abortion in Canada. And just to give you an idea of, of what a mixture of, of people the, this was, there was, you know, young feminists who wanted the focus to just be on abortion. There was also a van with a big banner that said smash capitalism. This was sort of a, you know, a potpourri of various revolutionary movements from the, the late sixties and early seventies. And when they got to Ottawa, they, they protested in the house of commons. They chained themselves to the spindles in parliament and they actually shut down parliament for the first time in Canadian history after which they dumped a black coffin on then-Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau's front lawn, filled with various tools that they claimed had been used or could be used in illegal abortions. And this kicked off the 17-year movement that culminated in the 1988 R.V. Morgenthaler decision, which threw out all of our abortion laws. And as some of your listeners might know from previous shows, uh, the Canadian Parliament attempted to to re-legislate for abortion one more time in 1990. That failed at a tie vote in the Senate, and we've been in a total vacuum situation ever since. Yeah, yeah, and and I think that that, that history is so valuable for people in the pro-life movement, Canadian or otherwise, to be aware of. Understanding the history of how abortion came to be accessible in your country, certainly we've seen this tragically unfold in places like Ireland in recent years, and we might have a lot of information at our fingertips. Obviously, Jonathan, your book, um, Patriots, is a, a great coverage of that, but also knowing I mean, right now, with everything that's unfolding in America, with um, the likely overturning of Roe v. Wade with the Dobbs versus Jackson whole health case, understanding how Roe v. Wade came about and, and what went into that. I know that we've done episodes with Mark Crutcher and other American pro-life leaders that have covered a lot of that. And I think that the history is really valuable. And one thing that I, I want to start segueing into here with you, Jonathan, is how we respond on a human level with the people that we're talking to. Because I, I as I recall, as I was talking with this older woman about where, where did this pro, pro-abortion worldview come from? I, one of the common questions that we ask while doing pro-life outreach is, when did you know that you supported abortion? Like, at what moment in your life did you know on the issue of abortion you sat on one side of the fence or the other. And that what's going on around there is often very, very indicative of what has forced them towards an embracing of the pro-abortion worldview. And, and for this woman that I was speaking with, what she told me was that she had been told by everybody at her college that she was attending at the time. I, I don't remember exactly what program she was pursuing, but this idea that free sex for everybody just hookup culture every night, and that she had a quote-unquote pregnancy scare. And a lot of people talk about pregnancy scares in different ways, but she was petrified of the idea that she was going to be pregnant, and she went to her, she called them um, her partner at the time, but, but she went on to explain it was a very open relationship, and they were both seeing many other people as well. But she went to the person that she thought had impregnated her. And went, you know what, I, I think that we're going to have to start settling down because I think that I'm pregnant. And I know the term ghosting only really, really became a thing recently, but this guy dropped all contact with her. He literally moved out of town with no note, no ability for her to contact him 
And she explained that it was at that moment that she realized that she supported abortion because nobody was going to look after her best interest. Nobody was going to help her through whatever she was going through. She explained that her parents would have told her, it's your own fault. Um, you shouldn't have been having sex. She said that she came from a Christian home and that, you know what, it's your own fault. You're going to have to deal with this. We're not going to help you, that sort of thing. That was the the world that she was coming from. And that's when she realized that she was required in some ways in her mind to support abortion because it was the only way that she could reconcile the promises of the sexual revolution with the realities of daily life and how can I have a, a different bedfellow every night and still pursue the careers and ambitions and everything that I want and still have the family eventually that I want. And I, I know, Jonathan, that, that every year you do a culture work course with our interns and you show a, a really interesting, I don't know if it's necessarily a debate, but but a discussion between intellectual thinkers and, and the kind of collateral damage and aftermath of the sexual revolution. I wonder just your thoughts. I mean, in all the research that you've done, certainly you've done all of the kind of logistical research and the timelines and all this kind of stuff. But on a human level, is this something of what motivated abortion access as well? That it wasn't just that, that people wanted to start having abortions because this was the new craze, but rather that they had been sold something with strings attached. Is, is that fair to say? Yeah. So there's a few different uh, reasons. And, and interestingly, I, th I think most of, most of uh, what I know about this comes from the same thing, um, the same place that, that your knowledge comes from, which is on the streets, mm -hmm. as opposed to in research specifically. So the first one would be for sure that the idea that the sexual revolution gave everybody this idea that they could have sex without babies. And of course, even with the advent of the birth control pill, uh, even with, with contraception that was allegedly more effective, this didn't pan out and people ended up pregnant. And of course, it was always women who got pregnant and men could leave town. Often abortion was the final betrayal in a series of betrayals, right? You have father betrays mother, mother betrays child, um, mother is abandoned by those around her. So it's sort of a final betrayal on a whole series of them. But it is it is very true that abortion is essentially the backstop contraception that, that was necessary for the sexual revolution to function, which is one of the whole reasons you see so much panic going on south of the border right now with the with the possibility, not not at all uh, certain, but the possibility that Roe Ro may be overturned. Um, you know, you'll have these activists like Ashley Judd suggesting that women go on sex strike uh, because abortion's illegal, which is an implicit recognition that they need abortion to remain legal in case the casual sex they're engaging in it, the sexual revolution promised them was their birthright, is going to result in what, you know, the baby making act often does react or result in, which is babies. So you have, of course, uh, as you as you pointed out, the fact that the sexual revolution made abortion in the minds of some to be necessary, that you could not have one without the other. And I, and I would agree that from a utilitarian uh, um, perspective, I suppose if you want to have the one, you're going to need the other. Uh, on the other hand, of course, you do have a lot of people who felt pushed into it. You have a lot of women who felt, again, uh, betrayed, and the the abortion clinic was actually at the end of a, at the end of a road where there were no other choices. I, I've said this before, I think, on this podcast, but you know, even Joyce Arthur of the Abortion Rights Coalition of Canada says that over half of women who have abortions in this country do so because they quote feel like they have no other choice. Which is, it's always really interesting to me that pro-choice people spend all of their time attempting to make abortions available to women who openly say that abortion isn't actually 
actually the choice they want uh, and only enabling that specific choice while neglecting uh, to supply them with the things that could help them make the life-affirming choice. And then finally, and most interestingly, when I was doing research for the book, Seeing is Believing, on abortion victim photography, specifically taking a look at why so many um, doctors, especially in the 60s and 70s, um, decided to to start uh, perpetrating abortions. What was interesting is, is some people were doing it for all the regular reasons, right? You could make a lot of money doing it. You could make a lot of money quickly doing it. Um, it was part of a, a set of revolutionary beliefs. But then there was a handful of abortionists and, and several in this country too that I spoke with um, who started doing abortions essentially because they saw women who were suffering after having a badly botched back alley abortion and said, I want to do that, but safely. And so basically they didn't want to argue about the presence of the child in the womb at all. They just simply said what we saw was so traumatizing. We wanted to ensure no woman had to go through that again. And the baby is really irrelevant to the discussion we're having. So those are a collection of the reasons that people started supporting um, abortion in the sixties and the seventies. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and it's interesting how that trickles down through the generations. I mean, often when we're debriefing after activism and, and we're trying to unpack how we, we show up at a public high school and the overwhelming majority of students there support abortion for a variety of reasons. And and at times, especially newer volunteers or even interns will will kind of bemoan the fact of like, how could they come to this decision? Like it's it's so obvious that the pro-life worldview is the only sound appropriate worldview. And yet what we tragically have to kind of unpack for them over and over again is like, in many ways, how could they come to a different worldview when the the pro-abortion worldview for many has been handed down now by two generations, if not three mm-hmm. generations, which is crazy to think of. And they're, and so they're not only hearing it from Hollywood and, and pro-abortion media and all this kind of thing, they're, they're hearing it from their parents and they're hearing it from their grandparents kind of thing, that, that there isn't, for many families, unfortunately, now there isn't a generation alive that is still hanging on to a, a Christian worldview, a pro-life worldview. And so this introduces a whole new need for a new generation of people who, like you and I, Jonathan, had the the, the blessing, the, the incredible grace to be raised in a family in which this worldview was still held to now invite other people into this worldview and help them realize. And it's it's beautiful and saddening at the same time when you have that eureka moment in front of you, when somebody realizes that what they've been fed for so long isn't actually necessary. When they've, they've clung to this, this is the only solution to this problem. And yet when they realize that there are actually other solutions available, that there are solutions that pro-lifers are willing and urgent and desperate to help them with, for them to realize that I don't actually need to cling on to abortion access as my get on a jail free card, as my my um, reset button or whatever you want to call it, that there is actually support available. And there are ways of getting through high school, getting through college, getting through life without becoming a part of hookup culture, I guess. And, and I know that you've had the opportunity to speak with a ton of students at conferences and whatnot. What is the reaction that, that you get at times? I'm sure that you're met with some degree of disbelief when you tell students that they don't actually have to buy into what culture is trying to not spoon feed them, but rather ram down their throats. What is the reaction that you get when, when you're interacting with people, whether it's on street corners or whether it's through the conferences and, and other events that you speak at? Well, I think I've told this story in, in the culture where I remember first realizing just how long ago it was 
that Canada was based on Judeo-Christian values. When there was a, a girl I was talking to outside of high school in Toronto, there was one year we had 110 public high schools uh, in, in a single school year. And, uh, and she was saying, well, I need abortion to be legal because, you know, if I get pregnant, then, and, and it was, I, I noticed that she was one of a whole bunch of girls I had recently talked to, all of whom just assumed the guy wouldn't be around. Like, it wasn't like, you know, if, if, if he doesn't want to be around, then I have to have an abortion. No, it was, it was an assumption that this would be something that you had to do by yourself. And I remember just asking her, like, have you ever thought of not sleeping with anybody until you, you know, actually love them and have a child with them? And, and she actually looked all wistful. She'd never even considered that before because the sexual revolution is the default now and Christianity is, is the aberration. All the polling data in Canada indicates that roughly 90% of Canadians attend no form of religious service regularly whatsoever. So I, I think we forget that people who hold our values are not just a minority in this country, but we're a very tiny minority. And just to give you a a generational sort of encapsulation, you had a lot of these ideas pioneered by leftist intellectuals. And so our current our current Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, is extremely passionate about abortion. Abortion is one of the things he's most passionate about, actually. And his parents, of course, uh, were, were uh, Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau, who brought abortion to Canada through the 1969 Omnibus Bill and ensured that it would remain a fundamental part of Canada with the, with the Charter of Rights and Freedoms in the 1980s. And when he was already a middle aged man. He married a very young woman uh, named Margaret, a couple of decades younger than him. She was a, a flower child uh, you know, of the, of the hippie generation, and they were the ones who produced Justin Trudeau. And abortion is fundamentally part of his family's legacy. It was his father who first decriminalized it. And his mother told Playgirl uh, magazine in one interview that she herself had had an abortion. So we know that uh, one of Justin Trudeau's half-siblings um, died as a result of an abortion. So what we see is, if you, if you want to look at our current prime minister now, he is he is sort of the default, and it's his parents. Uh, you know, his father passed away years ago already, and 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 his mother is elderly but still alive because they, she was a couple of decades younger than than his father. Um, like they they are sort of the default grand dame generation now, right? It's it's the Margaret Trudeaus now who are the old ladies that you're meeting on the street. That kind of gives you sort of uh, an easy an easy to understand chronology of, of where we are and why you're meeting old ladies who are suddenly are not nearly as nice as you expected them to be. Yeah, hundred percent. I, I think that's so valuable for us to to think on. And and obviously, we're not trying to make assumptions to people. I mean, don't assume that your grandmother is pro choice and and go and attack her on her for abortion worldview necessarily. Um, and yet, let let's pivot a little bit into being a part of the solution. I, I want to unpack a little bit of how I navigated this conversation. I want to get your take on what you might have added or or conversations that you've had that that you've tried to find some degree of resolution with these older folks who have had abortion, have, have seen a nation without abortion and have helped bring about a nation with abortion. And one thing that what I started with, and this is something we've talked about on the show before, Jonathan, and, and many in our audience would be familiar. At CSPR, we, we used to talk a lot about heart apologetics and how if head apologetics don't work, then you switch to heart apologetics. I'm a firm believer, as we've talked about on the show, that Every conversation, because every conversation is with a human who has both a head and a heart, is both a head and heart conversation. You're just having a human interaction. But one of the, the themes that we talk about is seeking to understand, and, and I kind of alluded to that earlier, trying to I'll invite her to unpack, help me understand where you're at on this issue. Help me understand why you hold this worldview. And that's where she 
unpacked a lot of the her own personal experience. And then I asked her a few more questions to, to help me understand what she was going through. I asked her about who was pushing her towards supporting abortion and who, if anybody in her life, she thought might help her navigate a pregnancy. She she told me that she didn't end up becoming pregnant, that it was just a pregnancy scare. But if she had become pregnant, who would have been there to help her and who would have been there to push her towards abortion? And then massively empathizing and building common ground with her, I, I, I said, you know what, I, I can't even imagine trying to navigate that world that you were placed in with a boyfriend abandoning you, a, a family basically disowning you until they found out that you weren't pregnant, and a friend group that was more than happy to push you towards whatever abortion access you could find. Um, I'm so sorry that, that you found yourself in that situation and that you had a society around you that was pushing. I made an analogy and I, I talked about, you know, there's a lot of messed up stuff happening in our world right now with I mean, it, you can't really equate inflation with what's going on there. But it, but if I was in a situation where my family life was falling apart and I had a born child, would I be willing to kill that born child? And starting to, to make some parallels and helping her to understand a different perspective on how do we solve very real problems that demand solutions without a solution of killing that born child. And, and by the end of the conversation, she stuck around for 20, 25 minutes or so. By the end of the conversation, she she wasn't willing to regret supporting abortion access during her kind of youth, young adult age, but she was willing to say, you know what, right now with the infrastructure that, that you've shared with me, with the support of people like you, I, I think that it makes sense that abortion should never happen in today's day and age. And, and I praise God for that. That, that, that is a beautiful transition for her. When, when you've had conversations, is that how you've tried to help them unfold or what kind of practical tips do you integrate into your conversation if you're trying to help somebody with a long-standing support of abortion to come to eventually reject that? Yeah, because this is where you're going to be the much better person to ask on that specific question for a couple of reasons. One, most of the time when we have you know older women that show up, they're carrying signs that say, I can't believe I still have to protest this shit. Yeah. And that's because they genuinely can't believe they still have to protest this stuff because they, they're like, what? Like two generations later and people are still saying abortion's wrong in public. Like I thought we won this walking away. Right. Um, and it, it's really interesting because I've seen at pro-life events that I was speaking at or that we were doing activism at like people who worked with Morgan Toller, people like Carolyn Egan actually show up to protest us. And it's always so strange because I recognize them. I'm like, you're like a historical figure in the worst possible way. And here you are at our thing, right? Like it's, it's, yeah. it's very strange. So to be honest, I, I've generally, generally tried to extract my conversa uh, myself from conversations of that age ever since we got our polling back in 2013, interestingly, that indicated that the, the, the and I find this to be very encouraging, is the group of women least likely to change their mind based on a conversation with us or seeing our imagery is women over 50. And the group of people most likely to change their mind based on a conversation with us or seeing our imagery are women 18 to 34. Um, that happens to also be the group that's most likely to experience uh, a pregnancy, which also makes them our primary target audience. So while I can explain why the generation is the way they are, I would I would generally defer to you in terms of how to communicate with them. And it sounds like you did a pretty phenomenal job on that. I <laughs> gotcha. Well, um, this is cool. And, and this is a huge part of the conversation. Mm. Um, Jonathan, I appreciate your, um, your, your time kind of unpacking 
some of the factors that go into this. I, I would love to to connect again um, at some point to talk about some of the factors that are happening. I yeah. mean, I, I think about high schools as well, and I'm sure there, there's lots that you could say about um, hookup culture in high schools and pornography and the role of sexual revolution. And, and now here we are, whatever, 50 years into it. Um, uh, and, and this is something obviously that, that you cover on your podcast all the time. And so maybe let's wrap up with um, where can people find more from you and what do you have coming down the tube? Give us a bit of a, a look at, at what um, you're working on for going forward and, and how to unpack what's going on in this crazy world around us and how Christians can respond with charity and with clarity at the same time. So we, I stockpile everything that I do for all the different platforms at thebridgehead.ca. Uh, the newest book that's coming out is in later this summer. It's called Prairie Lion, The Life and Times of Ted Byfield. He's one of Canada's great uh, public Christians who transformed Canadian politics fundamentally. Um, it was really, really interesting to write. Those of you who haven't heard of him, he passed away just this last uh, um, this last winter. I had to fly. I think I flew out right after Christmas for his funeral. Um, but that book was five years in the making, and I'm really excited that it's finally finished. And it also just tells part of the story of, of the backlash to Canada's sexual revolution. His magazine was one of the only ones that exposed the excesses of feminism, including one of his best covers ever, which was Fury in the Femisphere, which I thought was I thought was pretty good. Beautiful. Love it. Anyone else who wants to find more, you can you can find Jonathan's podcast, The Van Maren Show, on all of your favorite podcast catchers. Um, and I'm sure that for many of you who are connected in one way or another with um, outreach happening in the Southwest Toronto area, um, Jonathan, I'm sure that you're going to be working with the interns over the summer as well. So shout out to our, our fantastic interns. Um, we are having like rainfall warning rain today here in Calgary and Alex has the interns on postcarding and, and choice chaining and doing everything else. And so huge shout out to our interns and all that they're going through. Um, and yeah, thanks again, Jonathan for, for joining the show and look forward to chatting with you again soon. Anytime. All right. That was my conversation with Jonathan Van Maren. Um, a joy as always to be able to spend some time chatting with him about um, the connection of the culture war and the streets that we are on day after day. I hope that you appreciated and enjoyed the background information as to how we got here as a country, the different forces that impacted um, having abortion access in Canada, the role the government has played, the role the culture has played into it. And I hope that you uh, may have been able to glean a little bit out of my reflections on how I try to unpack these conversations, seeking to understand, empathizing, providing a different perspective, and when appropriate, building analogies for whether or not we've solved the very real situations the parents of born children are faced with by killing born children if not born children, why pre-born children? And so I hope that that's helpful for you. Um, if you have topics that you'd love us to unpack, I know that we have talked a little bit about um, the upcoming um, Dobbs versus Jackson Hole Health. I'm sure that many of you are following that um, news with um, bated breath, I'm sure. Um, I'm sure many others are, are following other news stories. And so if there's topics that you would find helpful for me to cover, whether me as a solo or, or if there's guests that you'd like to um, feature on the Pro-Life Guys podcast, please don't hesitate We've, um, to let me know whether you shoot me an email at email at prolifeguys.com, whether you hit us up on social media um, or whether you comment on the website. I'm sure there's other ways that you can get in contact with us. If you lean out your window and shout really loud, I might be able to hear you depending on where you're at. Um, let me know what you're interested in. What, let me know what you would find helpful. Um, and thank you so, so much for the efforts, the sacrifice, the prayers, um, and everything else that you are doing in defense of the weakest and most vulnerable member 
of the whole human family, the preborn child. Um, and I encourage and applaud you and challenge you to continue with whatever pro-life outreach you're doing and to look for ways to further optimize the effectiveness and the volume of that engagement. So thanks a ton. God bless you. And I hope that um, you're able to tune in again next week. Mm-hmm.